Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from the Southern California foothills town of Glendora, California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead lost people to Jesus, building a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you, opens your heart, and shows you how to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Church, it's Pastor Jim. We are in a series on the weekends called 2020 Hindsight, in, we, in which we look at all the things that God has taught us over the course of this last year and a half, this last long slog that we've been through together as a culture and as a world. And fortunately, God has been doing good things in the midst of hard times, and God has good things planned for us. I just want to hit the pause button for a minute before we rush back <clears throat> into public life, and I want to ask, what does God want us to Think about and retain and remember from this season. Let's take a minute. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you did bring us through this last year. And I thank you that even in the midst of hard times and broken times and loss, you haven't left us alone, but can actually use the brokenness of this world to call us to your beauty and your power and your goodness. Use these reflections to open our hearts and our minds to your will, that we might live more for you and less for us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. We're talking about various aspects of what we've been through in the last year and what God has taught us in the middle of this. We started out this series talking about the truth and how Christians seek truth in the midst of turbulent times. And we said Jesus is the foundation of all of our truth seeking. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him. So He is the the ground and the foundation of this series. Then we looked at what it means to live life following after Jesus, and we talked about J-O-Y. We put Jesus first, we put others' needs before ourselves, and finally, you keep your conscience clean, number three, J-O-Y. Jesus, others, and you. And today I want to talk about what we do with the brokenness of this world when we're really mad at somebody else, when we really feel like it's somebody else's fault. The words cancel culture first came into existence only seven years ago. It's still a baby term. And it first appeared in the world, in the, uh, uh, the fountain of all truth and wisdom, Twitter. Twitter is the first recorded place where the words cancel culture appeared. Not originally used in the way that we use them today. It was originally just a reference to the way TV networks were canceling fall programs. But by 2017, with the Me Too movement, cancel culture was becoming a more widely used term. And by 2018, it was everywhere. You remember in, uh, in 2019, comedian Kevin Hart had to back out of the Oscars because of some jokes he had told a long time ago, and uh, that prompted the surprise defense of Ellen DeGeneres, who said he shouldn't be removed from it. Uh, but we were all talking about cancel culture in that season. Uh, you remember the last two presidents of the United States from opposite parties have both condemned cancel culture. And here we are in the midst of a world where everybody's frustrated and everybody's angry and everybody wants to cancel whoever's fault it is. But if you want to know where that comes from, if you want to know the roots of it, you have to go back further than seven years because before there was cancel culture, there were boycotts. Boycotts named after Charles Boycott of Ireland, who back in 1880 uh, owned a bunch of uh, land 
and fired 11 farmers after a really bad harvest season. It's not their fault, it was the weather, and he fired 11 of them. And at that point, none of the other employees uh, would work for him. Everybody stopped working. And all the other businessmen in town stopped doing business with Charles Boycott. And uh, uh, so he found himself sort of in a defensive posture. So he went out and hired new farmers to come in and work the farms. And he hired, allegedly, the story is, he hired 1,000 security personnel to escort them to and from their jobs, despite the fact there were no threats of violence against them. He hired all the security to get them to their work and, and home again. And at the end of the season, the cost of security was higher than what the harvest brought in. Now, that story was so quirky, the American media picked it up and ran with it. And within a year, everybody in America was afraid of suffering the fate of Charles Boycott. Everybody was afraid of being boycotted. And, uh, and so that preceded the cancel culture. But it was the same idea. It was kind of an organized isolation in which the public could manipulate people into doing what the public wanted, often in the name of justice and accountability. The problem is, manipulative behavior doesn't then lead to healthy behavior. Manipulative behavior is destructive and leads to more destructive behavior, regardless of the motives. Uh, a poison seed doesn't grow a healthy plant. So we're in a world now where cancel culture is a common term, and we're all concerned about what people might do to us if we are portrayed in the wrong way in the public eye. Uh, if you want to know where that comes from, it's sort of an ironic question. Whose fault is blame? Right? If I could find that guy, I'd cancel him. Blame goes back to the very beginning. Let me read you a passage from the early, early part of the Bible that describes the rise of blame right at the beginning in the book of Genesis. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Goes back to the very beginning. Blame was the second sin. First, we rejected God's will for our lives when Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, and then immediately we start blaming each other for the problem. Now, let's look at the nature of our souls and what this last year has done for us as we run around trying to find someone to blame for the ills of the world. Recently, I've uh, referred, uh, I've referenced again in the sermons the uh, the stages of grief that we go through. Uh, this is the Kubler-Ross stages of grief, and uh, and as you may know, not everybody grieves in the same way, and not everybody goes through these sequentially. But but uh, these are five stages of grief that are commonly identified for people who are going through hard times. First, we go through a shock and denial period where we. Uh, act like what has just happened hasn't happened. Then we get angry. We are mad at the world. And a lot of people in this last year landed on anger and just stayed there, and they have not left it yet. Then we go through a stage of depression where we really just want to give up on life and the world. Um, and in the middle there, there's a stage called bargaining. Before we get to acceptance, there's a stage called bargaining. 
And bargaining is where we go try to make deals to undo the brokenness of the world. And this, this comes from a spiritual place. Because we go to God and say, God, if I offer the right sacrifices, will your anger be appeased? If I give up the right things, will you forgive me? If I do what you want, will you love me again and take away my pain? We go through this bargaining process at a deeply spiritual level at which we think, if I give up the right things, if I sacrifice in the right way, maybe the world will be made right again. And from that, that inclination to bargain comes the inclination to blame. If I can figure out what needs to be sacrificed, then I'll place blame on that and get rid of it, and the world will be made right again. And a lot of people in our world right now are in a stage of bargaining where they're looking for something or someone to sacrifice. I want to speak into that. Because as I said, in the coming decades, people will write scientific articles about what happened in the world of medicine and science in the year 2020. They'll write political treatises about it. They'll write public policy papers about what we do in the next pandemic. But I want to pay attention to the spiritual log of what we've been through and what we've seen. And it's important to pay attention to that, that deeply seated spiritual inclination to bargain and to blame. Because the Bible speaks into that in profound ways. So before I race the social media to announce to everybody whose fault I think it is, I might want to do some things that the Bible prescribes. There are four things I want to try to do when I get in that blaming place, where I'm looking for somebody to point the finger at. And I want to look at these four uh, uh, guidances from the Scripture. The first one uh, comes from the book of Matthew. Uh, when I want to blame somebody, when I really feel like pointing somebody and saying it's their fault, the world would be better without them, I might want to look in a mirror before I look under the microscope. That is, I might want to look at myself in the mirror before I put that person under the microscope. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It turns out that when I go to judge, I'm sort of a blind ophthalmologist trying to do eye surgery. I, I fail to see the things that have messed up my view of the world when I go nitpicking at somebody else's. And so I might want to look in the mirror first before I put somebody else under the microscope. Uh, there was a, a famous uh, capturing of this idea uh, when the London Times put out a call for essays and all kinds of famous people responded to it. One of them was G.K. Chesterton, the Christian writer and humorist of 100 years ago. The London Times put out the question, what's wrong with the world? Everybody submit essays. And G.K. Chesterton wrote back the shortest one. He wrote back, Dear sirs, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I am. And that's a biblical worldview. That's right. When, when I look at what's wrong with the world, I have to start with what's going on inside of me. We like to pray the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil. But the evil that God wants to deliver us from first is the evil that is within us, not the evil outside in dark alleyways that we're afraid of. Chesterton would uh, 
Chesterton was born in the 1870s, and so the story of boycott, which was in Ireland, right next door, would have been a part of his teen years as he was learning about the world and reading about the, the, uh, the country around him. And he actually would, would write about boycotting uh, in one of his later works. Uh, later on, Chesterton would write a book called What's Wrong with the World based on this little essay contest. And uh, uh, he has this little funny story about writing this book. One day he was writing the book, What's, what's Wrong with the World?, uh, and he kept referring to it as what's wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm working on what's wrong. And he says, one day a pastor came to his house to visit while he was writing the book. And the pastor asked him what he was up to. And he says, I've been doing what's wrong all morning. And uh, he said he, he scared the pastor a little bit. But he, in this book, What's Wrong with the World, Chesterton uh, writes that what's wrong with the world is that we don't, look at what, we don't look at the world rightly to begin with. We don't begin by looking at what a right world would be. When we talk about what's wrong with the world, we talk about what bothers us about the world, but we don't begin by clearing our own vision to see the world through God's eyes. That's where it begins. Looking not at what's wrong with other people, but looking at ourselves and working on our own internal issues before we go around nitpicking others. That's how we step back from the blame game. Number one, we look in a mirror before we look in a microscope. Number two... Uh, when we look around at the world and feel like blaming things, uh, we might want to look at people through God's eyes. Look at people around us and think about how God sees them. Because that person who annoys me, whether they're in my house or my workplace, that person that bothers me all the time, that's a child of God. And Jesus describes himself as a good shepherd who goes looking for lost sheep. That person who's lost, that person who's broken... That's the one that Jesus is after. And I can look at that person through the lens of my annoyances. But when I look through God's eyes at that person, I see a beloved child that God wants to save. The Scriptures teach in Romans chapter 5, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if he would die for us when we were still sinners, how does he want us to view people who are still sinners? He wants us to seek to save them not to simply walk around being annoyed by them. And if we go to throw rocks at sinners, Jesus has already shown us he stands by the one who is being assaulted, not by the ones who are doing the assaulting. So secondly, when I feel like blaming, I might want to look at people through God's eyes because they are lost children of God, not Satan's minions. Thirdly, uh, Romans 12 says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. It's actually something drawn from Proverbs. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus' goal for the brokenness of this world is not revenge, it's redemption. It's not that we would go stick blame on the right person. It's that we would find people who are blameworthy and lead them to innocence. I want to draw a, a metaphor, a profound spiritual metaphor from the playground at real life preschool. 
Because, you know, we run a preschool now, and there are kids out there uh, in the yard playing every day. Uh, and I, I've, I've watched them play some of the games that they play out there, and the, the games that kids play and play yards have not changed in the, you know, 20 or 30 years since I was a kid. It wasn't that long ago. It was, it was a long time ago. Um, but but they, they play uh, tag out there uh, on the real-life preschool lawns. And there are a couple of different kinds of tags. I don't know if you remember this from your childhood or if you're younger. This may be fresh in your mind. There are a couple of different, different kinds of tag that we used to play when we were little. There's one where somebody is it, and they are contagious or something. They are a bad person, and you don't want that person touching you because they're it. They have itness on them. And that person runs around trying to tag somebody else. And if they catch you and tag you, you're it. You're contaminated. You have whatever bad thing they had, and now everybody's trying to get away from you. And that's typically how you play tag. But there's another kind of tag, which I saw the kids playing. It still exists, where one person starts out and they are it. But when they catch the second person, the second person doesn't become it, and the first one then is no longer it. Instead, the first person and the second person link arms. And now they're on the same team. And the two of them go running together after a third person. When they catch a third person, they link arms with the third person, and now there are three of them. They go this way through the whole playground until they catch literally every last kid. And at the end, everybody is on the same team. None of them have been blamed or, or made the bad guy. They've all been brought together into one unified whole. Jesus' goal for his lost children is redemption, not revenge. His desire is that we go and find people who are broken and lead them to innocence. Lead them to a relationship with him where they can find real life. So when we, we look out there and we see that person that we are, are so annoyed with, whether they're in our house or in our workplace or preaching a sermon on Sunday, whoever it is that we just can't stand, what Jesus wants is for us to help that person find their way to redemption not stick blame on them. If, uh, if that metaphor isn't deep enough for you, uh, I'll, I'll give you another one, because I saw the same idea captured recently in the mouth of an atheist. There's a uh, Romanian philosopher that all the kids are reading now in the schools <clears throat> named Emil Quaren. I majored in philosophy, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Nobody ever heard of Quaren before, but now everybody's reading him, and all the cool kids are reading him, so I figured I'd get one of his books and read it. It was, it was okay. But he's, he's an atheist, and he's really bitter. But he, uh, he, has, he has a clever way of saying things. And at one point in his writings, uh, he says this. He says, the best way to get rid of an enemy is to speak well of him everywhere. What you say will be repeated to him, and he will no longer have the strength to harm you. You have broken his mainspring. He will still campaign against you, but without vigor or consistency. For unconsciously, he will have ceased to hate you. He is conquered, though unaware of his defeat. And that's an atheist figuring out what the Bible said 2,000 years ago. Well put. For Christians, it isn't just to calm down our enemies. Our goal is to redeem our enemy, to introduce our enemies to Jesus by the way that we love them instead of seeking revenge on them. Our goal is to bring people into redemption so that they join Jesus' family, not so that they feel ostracized by the church. So thirdly, I try to remember that Jesus is after redemption, not revenge. And the fourth one is probably the most profound. Of all the things the Scripture has to say about blame, 
The scriptures teach us that Jesus welcomes our blame on himself. And this comes from the ancient practice of the Jewish people 1,500 years or more before Jesus. There was a, 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 an instinct that they had and that God satisfied in the prescriptions for worship that God gave them. There, there's this instinct that we have to find someone or something to blame and want to push them out so that we in our community are then safe again, so that we're innocent again, so that that which is evil is gone from us. And that, that seems to be something that's in our wiring. And so when God was giving the, the layout, the blueprints for Israel's worship, he instills in their practices a, a custom that captures in a physical way this spiritual reality that we want to place blame on something and push it out. And this is in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 16 says, when Aaron, who's the brother of Moses, the high priest, when Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, this is the place where they worship, and Aaron was supposed to go through certain ritual practices to prepare the place of worship. After he does that, he shall bring forward a live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it into the wilderness. This is literally where we get the idea of a scapegoat. Aaron would bring a live goat in, place his hands on the head of the goat, and confess all the sins of Israel onto this goat. And somehow, spiritually, mystically, the, the guilt of the sins was passed onto this animal. And then someone would lead the animal out into the wilderness and release it. And the evil, the brokenness of Israel, went with it. They had a real live scapegoat onto which they dumped all of their junk and sent it away. Because God knows that in our hearts, we have this instinct to want to pin blame somewhere and get rid of it. The God who made us knows that that is how we are made. And when God walked the earth, Jesus of Nazareth, he went to the cross to take on himself all of our brokenness and all of our shame and all of our need to place blame. Jesus literally invites you at that moment where you are urgent to blame somebody, urgent to point towards evil and send it away. Jesus invites you to confess your sins over his head. And he takes all of your brokenness and all of your guilt onto himself on the cross. When we believe that Jesus died for us, all of our guilt and sin and brokenness go with him to that cross, and we don't carry it anymore. This is the good news of the, the gospel. You are absolutely, totally forgiven. Those, those guilty feelings that you feel when you think about standing in front of God, you don't have to feel anymore. He is more than eager to take them away from you. When I want to blame somebody, when I want to point out somebody else's fault, Jesus says, dump all of that junk on me. 
I'm taking that to the cross to create a community of love that no longer carry shame and no longer need to shame others. I want to create a church that just exudes love for broken people because they know what it's like to be loved. You know what it's like to be forgiven when you didn't deserve it. And he wants you to forgive others as well. So take all of your blame, all of your guilt, all of your brokenness, confess it over the cross, and then walk away from it. As you go about your life, remember first and foremost, you are now absolutely 100% innocent in the eyes of God. He does not see your sins anymore. So when someone wrongs you, You don't have to operate out of a position of defensiveness. I better protect myself or else I might lose something. You've got everything you will ever need. It's already yours. All you have to do in return is exude love and forgiveness and grace to people who do not know how forgiven they can be. You are the vessel for God's forgiveness in this world. Don't carry shame and blame and guilt around and let that weigh you down. Dump that all on the cross. This is what the Bible tells us. When we go to God to bargain, if I find the right sacrifice, if I blame the right person, will you make the world right again? Can we straighten everything out? Can we just go on, go back to normal? Instead, what Jesus wants us to do is, number one, Look at a mirror, not a microscope. Look at ourselves first and see what God is trying to work on in our own hearts. Secondly, look at other people through the eyes of God. They are lost children who he longs to save. Thirdly, seek redemption, not revenge. And fourthly, live in the shadow of the cross and the promise of its grace. Jesus doesn't want you living with blame. He wants to set you free. That's the gospel, and that's the message for us today. Pray with me. Jesus, I thank you that you love us and that you gave yourself for us, and I thank you that You came to set us free from the brokenness of this world. You lived in the brokenness of this world and walked in it to heal and not to condemn. Teach us to heal and not to condemn. Teach us to love in your name. To seek not to lash out in our anger against people who might well deserve it, but instead to live lives of love in order to point to the one who loves us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go be the church. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Instagram or Facebook at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.